Should we pray together? <clears throat> Father, we pray for our children and young people as they go out to their groups now. We pray, Father, that you would bless their time together. And they would discover more about what a wonderful friend and saviour you are. And Father, we pray for ourselves now as we open your word. Would our hearts and minds be receptive to all that you want to show us, all that you want to reveal about yourself this morning. And Father, may we be those who respond in worship and love and praise. In your name we pray. Amen. Meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, imperfect harmony, the man who is God, Lord of eternity, dwells in humanity, kneels in humility and washes our feet. I'm sure you recognize those words, many of you. I was slightly shocked to discover when I looked them up this week that they were penned nearly 40 years ago. Oh my goodness, I suddenly felt very old. (laughs) But they're still brilliant words, aren't they? Graham Kendrick, who wrote them, he's seeking to capture somehow or other, and our words just aren't good enough really, but he does it beautifully, to capture the humanity and the deity of Jesus. He wants to somehow get words to to describe that Jesus is 100% human, and yet he's 100% God, right at the sort of core of our face. Jesus, this man who is God, how do we grasp this truth? How do we understand him? Well, what we discover um, in the Gospels, but I think also many people that we meet, is that Jesus, the man who is God, when we investigate his life, that he's nothing like we thought God would be like. He's nothing like we imagined him. And that's certainly true in Jesus' time. And yet Jesus came to show us what God is like. So I wonder what your view of God is um, this morning. Well, in our new preaching series, if uh, you were here last week, you'll know we're looking at the stories of Jesus in the gospel And what we find, we're concentrating in on where we find Jesus eating and drinking and talking with people. Because Jesus loves a good meal, just like we do, I imagine I do. And in Luke's gospel, there are no less than 10 stories that are set around a meal table. So we often find Jesus eating, drinking, talking with people, having conversation. And Jesus right at the center, Jesus right at the center of these occasions. I wonder what that tells us about God. Well, eating together is something we love to do, isn't it? It's, um, we love to go out for a meal, perhaps, or have people around for a meal. Um, I think that's why a lot of us found the pandemic so difficult, wasn't it, when we couldn't see people and share together. It's relaxing, isn't it? It's a great time to, uh, to share, to be together. And we tend to invite people, I imagine, that we know well, people that we get on, on well with, maybe family, friends. Or we perhaps invite people that we think we might get on well with, so we invite them around to get to know them better. Uh, that's what we do, and that's what was no different in Jesus' time. They would often eat together. Very much part of Jesus' culture. Um, you ate with your friends, with your family, with your religious group, your social group, those like you. And Jesus, it would seem, loved to be part of that occasion, loved to be around the table. And Luke uses these stories of Jesus to help us understand more of who he is, this unfolding character and identity that shows us more of what God is like. What we discovered last week is that Jesus had a very different criteria, though, for those that he chose to eat with. 
and that he actually longs for us to embrace that and offer the same welcome that he offered to others. So last week, Jeannie really helpfully helped us think about the impact that it had of Jesus choosing to eat with tax collectors, those considered enemies by society, and yet they were welcomed by Jesus. Well, today we're going to find Jesus at another meal table, and this time it's the table of Pharisees. Of course, the Pharisees were well known, weren't they, for their strict observance of um, traditional law. They had a slight air of superiority, you know, self-righteousness, slightly better than everybody else. And they were quick to judge uh, Jesus for his willingness to eat with people like Levi, the uh, tax collector. They thought that Jesus would affirm their, uh, their religiosity. So let's begin by reading uh, the first bit of the story. It's in Luke uh, chapter 7. Have, if you have a Bible, do uh, turn to it with me. Luke chapter 7, verses, I'm going to read from verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. What we're going to discover in this story is that it's about extravagant and extraordinary forgiveness from Jesus and a story of uninhibited and unrestrained worship of Jesus. And I wonder as we unpack this story together, who will end up identifying with more? Because there are two significant characters in our reading. Um, Well, three if you include Jesus, of course. But the Pharisee, whose home the meal takes place in. And then there's the unnamed woman who was, as it turns out, an uninvited guest at the meal table. So when Luke begins this story, as we've just read it, There's very little information at this stage about the Pharisee, as he's called. We don't even have his name. We don't know why he decided to invite Jesus to come round to his house for a meal. And we don't know who else is sat around the table, though I think we could assume that it's probably other Pharisees that are known uh, to the man. All we're told is that Jesus arrives and he reclines at the table. And in Jesus' day, they didn't sit up to a high table like we did. It would be a low table. So they'd they'd recline on a couch with their head near the table and they prop up on one elbow and use their other hand to eat. And of course, their feet would then be stretched out behind them. And that would have enabled this uninvited guest, this woman, to uh, approach Jesus without approaching the table. And often a visiting rabbi or somebody very important, um, word would get around that that they were coming to a certain person's house and... uh, and it wouldn't be unusual for somebody like um, an uninvited guest to sort of wander in and, and to have a peep, you know, to see if they wanted to meet this or have a look at this, this important guest. I, I guess it's a bit like, um, you know, if you found out your, your favourite celebrity was in a local restaurant, you might wait outside to get a peep of them. But the problem for this woman who approaches Jesus is that her reputation follows her around. 
We're told that she'd lived a sinful life. That, that means a promiscuous life, more than likely a prostitute. And therefore, she would have been somebody rejected by society, and she would have been shunned, quite obviously, as she walked around, as she went about her daily life. Now, Luke doesn't tell us, he doesn't give any account of when, or if for that matter, she had, had met Jesus um, face-to-face before. We don't know this. Or whether, where she'd heard Jesus speak. But if you go back through the Gospel of Luke, you find lots of little sentences where the crowds followed Jesus, the crowds listened to Jesus, the, the, the crowds heard of Jesus's um, words of God. So I don't think it's... it's um, Hard to imagine that she was perhaps in one of those crowds, that she'd um, been one of those people that had listened and responded to what Jesus had been saying. Because at at some point, I think she heard Jesus' message, this message of repentance and forgiveness of sins. And I think it's this that's driving her to seek to meet this man, this man who spoke such words of hope for people like her. Now, to enter into this sort of intimate meal setting that she does, for a woman of of her standing, a woman like her, would have been a hugely courageous thing for her to do. She would know what people were thinking about her. She knew that around that table and around that room, those people would be judging her. She knew that probably it wouldn't be long before she got asked or shuffled out of the room and told to leave. She knew, she knew that. But she was compelled to get close to this man, the man that she'd heard and seen from a distance, the man who'd spoken such life-giving, hope-filled words, the one who'd given her reason to hope, to believe that even she could be forgiven, even she could be made clean, could be made right with God, even her. So she moves closer And as she gets closer, as she moves into God's presence, we're told she began began to cry. She begins to weep. In fact, she sobs uncontrollably at Jesus' feet. I don't know. We're not told why. But no doubt, I think they were tears of thankfulness, tears of relief, sobs of love, sobs of adoration, sobs of acceptance that this man wasn't going to use her and then toss her away. This man was different. He'd promised to restore her broken and her desperate heart. She'd never known anyone like this. She'd never known such love and such grace. She'd come to anoint this man, Jesus, who had given her such hope. But without a thought... Almost without any control, she floods him with her emotion. She's completely overwhelmed in his presence as she meets the love and the forgiveness of Jesus, her saviour. Well, of course, to the Pharisees' dismay as they watch on, Jesus doesn't shove her away. He doesn't ask her to leave. He doesn't rebuke her for causing a dreadful scene as her eyes get all red and her face gets all blotchy. That's what should have happened. Well, that's what the Pharisees are thinking as they watch. Hang on a minute, they think. God loves good people. She's far from good. She needs to be sent out of here, back where she came from. She's not good enough for God. Not good enough to be part of our elite group. 
We're the ones who obey the law. We're the ones who try hard and do our best. But Jesus doesn't push her away. And you know today, Jesus doesn't push us away. He doesn't push you away. He doesn't push me away. Well, no one bothers passing her a tissue or a towel to mop up her tears or to dry Jesus' wet feet. So she unties her hair and dries his feet with her hair. This is scandalous. We don't get the full impact of this. This is scandalous. This is intimate act. It's shocking for those looking on. But this woman's responding in what I couldn't think of any other word than self-forgetfulness. Self-forgetfulness. She doesn't care what anyone else thinks. She doesn't even care what she looks like. Her only thoughts are for this man, Jesus, who has turned her life upside down and forgiven her. You can imagine her singing those words, My Lord, what love is this that pays so dearly that I, the guilty one, may go free. Amazing love. You see, she understands. She understands her need for a saviour. She understands that Jesus is offering her that forgiveness. Sadly, the Pharisee doesn't. So now she kisses and she anoints Jesus' feet with the perfume from the alabaster jar. No idea what it would have cost, but a lot of money. And there she is bowed at his feet in total surrender, humbly worshipping Jesus with all she has. He's the one that's rescued her, and she is submitting in worship to him. In this quiet, determined, but unnamed, we never find out her name, we see the recipient of extravagant and extraordinary forgiveness. And we see her respond with uninhibited and unrestrained worship. It's a beautiful picture of worship. But what about the Pharisee? the host of the meal, who's been so far left speechless as he's watched what's going on in his home. Well, he's got an internal voice that's chattering away, as I imagine it does for many of us every day. He's making judgments and harsh comments about, those that, about this lady, and I wonder how often we do that about people that we see and meet every day. We just can't help it when we meet somebody just sizing them up and working out who they are and where they fit But what he doesn't realise is that Jesus can hear that unspoken chatter. And I wonder how often I forget that Jesus can hear the thoughts that are going on in my head. The Pharisee has obviously been invited, um, has obviously invited Jesus into his home to try and work out more who this man is that he's heard so much about. And as he watches these events unfold, he decides... Well, he can't be a prophet, because if he was a prophet, he would know. He'd know this woman was and uh, who was touching her, and he'd tell her to stop. But, of course, Jesus responds to these unspoken thoughts, and he proves to this man, not, uh, not only a prophet, but God himself, the Messiah, as he goes on eventually to forgive this woman's sin. We'll read about in a, in a in a moment. We'll also read in a minute that, that this Pharisee has committed a few um, sort of social faux pas when he, 
when his guests arrived, because we discover that he hadn't provided any water to wash Jesus' feet, which was customary. A hot, dusty land, and when people arrived, you were offered a bowl of water to have your feet washed. He didn't do that. He didn't give Jesus a customary kiss on the cheek, which would be culturally what you would do when uh, somebody entered your home. And also um, anoint them often with oil. He, he didn't do that to welcome this new person into his home. To be blunt, he was really lacking in any form of respect or courtesy um, towards Jesus in that, in that um, invitation. But in comparison, as we've seen, you have this outpouring of love and respect from this woman who wasn't even invited um, to the table. Luke, uh, very clearly here, is pointing out for us, drawing a picture of the difference between ritual and response. The difference between ritual and response. Because the Pharisee's life was a web of ritual. Because God, in his understanding, wasn't somebody who forgave you generously and freely. The God he had in his understanding was one who needed to be coerced and needed to be, um, you need to prove to him by your strict obedience to the law, that you were accepted and forgiven. Ritual was to be followed. It was to be adhered to. It wasn't an emotional heart response that you gave from the inside of your being. It was a daily effort, a daily grind to be obedient to God. Such a contrast. Such a contrast to this woman's outpouring of love and affection. And I just wonder how often our, our worship can become a ritual can become a ritual to be followed, a, a song to be sung, a prayer to be said, a chore to be finished. I wonder how often our minds are somewhere else when we're singing our familiar songs on a Sunday morning. I wonder how often at times our hearts are dry and cold, even though our mouths might be, might be moving. I wonder how often we look for God's approval to, to try and make up to him for the things that we've done wrong during the week, the things that are laying heavy on our conscience, how long, how we're trying to find God's approval. I wonder how we see God. I wonder how you see God this morning. And I wonder how sometimes our view of God gets a bit warped and a bit distorted and a bit confused. And this is the contrast that we see between the woman and the Pharisee. Her worship is there's no ritual there's no effort if you like it's totally a response isn't it nothing else just a complete response to the forgiveness that she's been given it's not worked at it's very real and raw it's not dry it's heartfelt it's emotional it's not seeking to any to achieve any kind of approval it's completely expressing all that's in her heart of gratitude and love for all that God has done for her. And the woman sees this, but Simon, whose name we'll find out in a minute, he doesn't see it. So I'll read the rest of the story um, before we look at it some more. So from verse 40 of chapter 7, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to t tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said, Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will, will love him more? Simon replied rather begrudgingly, 
I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Of course, he knows that that's the answer. He doesn't want to admit it. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Well, the bigger the debt, the bigger the payment that hangs over you. We all know that. And the bigger the relief and thankfulness when the debt is undeservedly, unexpectedly cleared and dealt with. Somebody pays it off for you. The bigger the debt, the bigger your gratitude. It's quite simple, isn't it? A simple story that Jesus tells. But you know, Simon, he can't see it. He can't see it. And I'd like to suggest this is because Simon isn't aware of the seriousness of sin. You see, when we think that we're able to make ourselves a better person, then we're not able to see the seriousness of sin. We're not able to see how much of a hold sin has on us. When we think that God can be made to love us by how well we behave and how hard we try, then we've lost sight of really how inadequate and incompetent we are. We have an overinflated view of ourselves. And you know, when we get caught up in all the rituals of maybe prayer and Bible study and church going, when our heart becomes dry and cold, then I I think, sadly, the depth and the cost of forgiveness that we know about has somehow been buried and got lost, perhaps in the busyness and the exhaustion of life. But for the nameless woman, the sinner, the sinful woman, she knew how huge her debt was. And she knew that she could never repay that debt. She was totally and utterly aware of her need for a saviour. Completely, 100% convinced that she was drowning in her sin and she couldn't rescue herself. She knew that she deserved punishment for her failure, for her disobedience, for all that she'd done. But you know, the truth is, Simon also had a debt. He may not have lived an immoral life. He might not have been lived a disreputable life like the woman in front of him. But he too was a sinner. His pride and his arrogance, his judgmental nature, his unkind words, they all separated him from God. He also had a debt. He just couldn't see it, that he would never be able to repay. But you know, for the one who is aware of the seriousness of their sin is aware of the enormity of the debt that they have. 
They are the ones. They are the ones who can experience this amazing forgiveness that Jesus offers. And Jesus says, that as they receive that, he says, they're the ones who then love much, as this woman demonstrates in her outpouring of love to Jesus because her debt was so huge, understood the seriousness. Her response was so great. She loved him much. And it's not something that needs to be worked at, this response. It's a heartfelt, and dare I say, emotional response. It's not a ritual. And that's what we see, uninhibited, unrestrained worship from her heart, full of emotion, responding to this man who's offering her forgiveness that she has not been able to find anywhere else. And I think Jesus asks us today, as he asked the Pharisee, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman this morning? Do you see her? Because it's to this woman, this uninvited guest who shouldn't have been there, who'd lived a disreputable life, rejected by society, it's to her that Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. He's not telling her what she doesn't already know. She's already discovered that her sins are forgiven. He's telling her so that they all hear it so that they all get a chance to understand that this is the way. When you have received and understood the forgiveness of Jesus, then your love will pour out to him for all that he's done. So I wonder who you identify with this morning. Because here's the good news for you and me this morning, and that is that this forgiveness that was offered to this woman is offered to us as well. It's available for you and it's available for me today. And you may be here this morning feeling that what you've done, the past that follows you around, the moment that you regret, perhaps even this week that you did, well, that's stuck with you forever, that that's going to be with you forever, that somehow or other you deserve to carry that burden that you feel so heavy. You perhaps look around and think, if people really knew me, they'd shun me like they did the woman. Perhaps you're that unnamed person in the story today. Jesus invites you to his table this morning. Jesus invites you to his table this morning.